The following is a sermon from Pastor David Salinas of Sure Foundation, a church located in Woodside, Queens, New York, the world's most diverse community. For more information and for more audio content, go to sure-foundation.org. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whom we have won an amazing resounding victory. My dear brothers and sisters and our dear Lord Jesus. A commentator once said about the book of Romans that that if the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans was its precious jewel, that Romans chapter 8 was the sparkling tip or point of that jewel. To climb up and stand upon Romans chapter 8 is to stand on such high ground. You know what it's like? It's like you can almost reach up and touch the clouds of heaven. I want you to think about this. This chapter starts off with an absolute bang. There is now no condemnation. And this chapter in the Bible ends with a fireworks finale. There is no separation. And in between, it is packed with such life-giving Holy Spirit power and victory. To stand on Romans Chapter 8 is to stand on spiritual exhilaration and excitement and renewal, but but it's more. This chapter is spiritual necessity. It is because, because we believers who live in this world and have yet to crest heaven's peaks are under attack the whole way. We are believers who are beleaguered. We are besieged, surrounded, and pressed in by all kinds of things. Think about the deadlines and the frustrations that besiege us. We are always besieged by those allurements to to straddle our faith and, and to try to choose Jesus on one hand and our own desires and our own convenience on the other hand. We are besieged and assailed by by the frustrations that can come with Jesus' promise of 75% failure rate for sowing the gospel in the sense that that three out of the four soils on which we will sow the seed will not bear the fruit that we want and that he wants to see. We're, We're constantly assailed by those old, stubborn, nagging, and gnawing thorns in our flesh, those particular weaknesses that, that just that afflict us, and that no matter how hard we try to reach, we can't quite get it to pull it out. And we are assailed, and we are besieged by all kinds of new problems and bad news that comes our way, and by the struggles that come as we move from one stage of life and one epoch into the next. Besieged and pummeled and beat down by all of that, what could be more important for our lives as believers than to be lifted up? Well, here we are, Romans chapter 8. Open up your worship folders and let's follow along with this amazing chapter of the Bible. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, and he is, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Recently, in the state of Arkansas, a man by the name of Liddell Lee was executed. Before he had been given the opportunity to present DNA evidence of his innocence, for 20 years this man had maintained that he had not done the crime of which he was convicted, and so there he was on death row, and, and he was executed. And one of, one of his lawyers, in a sad way, just wrote a letter describing what, what Lee's last moments were like, that, those hours right before he was sent to his death. And the, and the lawyer described you know, the common things. He, he, he called his mother, he called his family, and, and talked to them and wished them well and told them that he would see them again. He, he spent some time with his pastor, whom he had loved for, for 20 years. And, and then in those last moments, it kind of overtook him, and, and you can almost see it with his trembling hands. He was divvying up the last bit of things that he owned, some saltine crackers and, and, and some napkins, willing those to his cellmates next, next to him. And the question that came into my mind at that moment as I read this lawyer, and he was sad because he was convinced of this man's innocence, was, we don't know for sure because the DNA evidence hasn't come back, but what if he was innocent? What if you were Liddell Lee, and you knew you were innocent, but there was nothing you could do to stop it? And there you were, with your hands shaking, saying goodbye to your family and divvying up the last possessions that you have. You know, Romans chapter 7, at the very end of it, this cry of victory that the Apostle Paul gives, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about last week that it was, it was you know, about this sign that goes on. That, that cry of victory is also another type of sign that we do, but it's a sigh of relief. It's this big, shh, 
Thanks be to God that you and I who are in Christ Jesus are not Liddellis. We are not men and women and children who are sitting there on death row with absolutely no hope, convicted of our crimes, sentenced to death, and awaiting the needle to be separated from our families, to be separated from the people that we love, and to be separated from God for all eternity. You and I are not that. You see, because even though, even though the Apostle Paul at the very end of chapter 7 painted the, the picture of what you and I are like as believers in this world, you know what we are? We're basically the name of that Irish restaurant right here on Roosevelt Avenue in 59th. Saints and sinners, right? As he said, he said the Apostle Paul said that in, in my mind, my Christian mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but in my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. And yet Paul could still breathe this, this sigh of relief and expel this cry of thanksgiving in Christ Jesus, being sinner and being saint at the same time, because when we are in Christ Jesus, always what he is trumps. It goes over and wins the victory over what we are by nature and by fact, by, by practice, sinners. To be 100% saint, justified in Jesus, and to be 100% sinner by birth and by practice is still to be 100% victorious because everything that Jesus is and everything that he has done for us completely fills that gap between the good that we ought to do and know we should do and fail to do. Jesus' blood and righteousness covers over all of our wretchedness, and so in God's eyes, when he sees us in Christ, he can only render the verdict that he has. I find you not guilty by reason of Jesus Christ. You are free to go. You're free to go to heaven. And this is the thing, that whenever, whenever we feel that weight of our sin and of our own guiltiness, the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit who inspired him would have us go back into this courtroom and relive that dramatic moment where we are told to rise and the judge issues his verdict. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No guilty verdict, no punishment, because through the law of the Spirit of life, he has set me free from the law of sin and death. What is the only thing that makes sense when you hear God issue his verdict? To believe it, right? Can you think of something more absurd and more ridiculous than to hear a verdict of such beauty and power and, and amazing relief and appeal it? I mean, in, in our judicial system today, I mean, it's clogged because of all kinds of people who have been rendered guilty verdicts, and they're fighting to overturn those verdicts. So they're appealing to the next process, and this makes perfect sense. We kind of expect that, right? If I'm guilty, the judge finds me guilty, I want him to overturn that sentence. At the very least, I want him to, to lessen the sentence that is due me. You would, not, you would never hear how crazy would it be to hear of somebody who would be told, I find you not guilty, and then he takes out a second mortgage on his home to hire a team of lawyers to appeal that verdict, to overturn it so that he would be found guilty. Well, you think that's the most insane and crazy thing that you would ever heard, right? That's kind of what, what we sometimes do with God's verdict. We do it when we, when we start to wallow in our sin. When we start to make our own weaknesses more than the cross. It's almost like we start to believe that, 
that not all of my sins fit inside of the holy flesh of the Son of God as he paid for them on Calvary's cross. And, and so, so we can think, gosh, I'm always such an angry person. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just mean. I come to church and I just, I put on a face. I pretend I'm really not as nice. Pastor David is not really the nice guy that you think he is. He's mean. He's a nasty guy. I can't for the life of me, I can't stop looking. I'm just so weak. I know I shouldn't be living in sin. I know I shouldn't be doing this. I, but I'm too scared if I make the decision to do what's right And so sometimes we, you know, it, it's of course very good to recognize and to be aware of our own sinfulness and to confess and be repentant of that, but we go too far when we start to take our own sins and make them our identity. I am such a, it is basically our jumping up from the defendant's table and shouting at God, objection, your honor, I am not innocent. I, I, I am not forgiven by you. And we sentence ourselves to a life of guilt and, and, and tinged with more sadness than what we would otherwise have. We, we, we sometimes sentence ourselves to a life where we don't live to the full potential of what we could if we bask in the very beautiful verdict and the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so lives devoid of hope and, and lives devoid of, of all of the power for service and of loyalty to God and to his word and to his people that we could otherwise have. But you know what I have to say at just this moment? I want you to join your hearts with mine, and I want you to cry with the Apostle Paul, that very beautiful cry, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know why? Because God in his absolute love for us refuses to let us wallow in our sins. He refuses to let us appeal this amazing verdict. It's too beautiful, too powerful, too life-saving, and he is not going to let you miss out on that glory, not even for a little bit. He paid too high a price for that. And, and so through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit presents our verdict. Let me tell you, in a way it was for me and for my wife, a way in which we looked at this in a way which we never had, and she was almost so trembling and shocked. She said, is, could it really be that good? Is it really that powerful? In, in this sense, that our acquittal before God is not just a not guilty verdict, but an exoneration. In other words... You've seen it, right? You've seen the mob boss who is there, you know, and, and he, you know he's guilty as sin, right? But he, he hires this perfect defense, and the prosecution just cannot establish that level of reasonable guilt for the judge to find him guilty. So the judge says, or the jury finds him not guilty, and he's let off, but you know the guy is guilty as sin, and, and at the very least you say to yourself, he's going to have to live the rest of his life, you know, with what he did, because he knew that he did it, right? You've seen that, right? That's not you. That's not the verdict that God, that God renders over you, this not guilty verdict. That's, that's not the kind of verdict that he has. Instead, it's a verdict where you have been proven innocent in Christ Jesus. Look at this, and look at this in a way maybe perhaps like you've never seen. Go ahead and look at that verse 1 once more with me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, go to verse 4. Here's the reason why there's no condemnation for you. Because there is condemnation for sin. And so God condemned sin in the holy flesh 
of his one and only son. This is what's happening. God has so fully and so completely and so thoroughly taken all of our sins, charged them to his one and only son that the DNA evidence in God's laboratory has come back and the skin beneath the fingernails of the victim is not yours and mine. It's Christ. He is the assailant. He is the rapist, not you and me. In other words, he is the sinner. You and I, we're not the mean ones in Christ Jesus. He is. You and I, it's like, it's like we are not the ones who, who can't stop looking. We are not the ones who are weak. And, and we are not the ones who cheated. And we are not the ones who had the abortion. And we are not the ones who sinned in all of the ways in which we had. It's Jesus in him. You are innocent. And this is what it's like for you and for me. There we are, like Liddell Lee, inside of that death row chamber. And in Christ Jesus, we didn't do it. And the Holy Spirit has entered that DNA evidence in time. And he has taken us out and presented us before God and argued our case on the base of Christ Jesus, our only Savior. And the judge has looked at the evidence and said, wow, you really are not guilty. You didn't do it. You are free to go. And so this is life for you and for me after the verdict. We are to This is how God wants you to live. He wants you to live repentant lives that turn to Christ and then that profess your innocence fiercely. And so when Satan and your own conscience throw your sins in your face, you throw them right back. You throw them right back. And you say, talk to the hand. You're right. I have done things of which I am ashamed, and I deserve to die. But in my place stood one, the righteous one, who absorbed all of my guilt. And so in him, I didn't do it. And you're wrong. I am innocent. I am innocent. I didn't do it. That's what you tell them. Christ became my sin, and I became his righteousness, and I will live free, free. Now this brings up this beautiful question, though, right? I mean, we're walking out of this courtroom, and we're like, the Holy Spirit is holding up our hands as victors. We're walking out, and, and we're just so thrilled and just so happy that, that I'm innocent, and we're breathing the fresh air of freedom. What's the only way for us to live our lives in the wake of that? I can only think of one way. I can only think of one way. To dedicate ourselves and determine ourselves to proving that judge's verdict correct. To show to the whole world, he wasn't wrong. He was right. I really am the innocent, pure, beautiful, righteous, upright person that, that God declared me to be in Jesus. I mean, that's the way that I want to live my life. And that's the way that the Apostle Paul directs us and moves us here in this other amazing section of our lesson here. Where, where, he, where he moves us to this new life. And, and this is how he does it. If you look at your, your, your passages here, he, he takes out two, two, draws out two circles, makes two camps of people, those who live according to their flesh, in other words, the unbelievers, and those who live according to the Spirit, those who trust in Jesus as their Savior. 
And then he says something in, in verse 8 of here that's shocking to the ears. What does he say? Look at that very clearly. Those who live according to the flesh cannot do something. What can they not do? What can they not do? Verse 8. They cannot please God. So no matter how good a person might be or what kind of a noble life he or she might live, apart from faith in Christ, that life does not please God. And then you think to yourself, well, well wow, why? Well, if you go back to verses 5 through 7, you have three very good reasons why somebody who lives according to the flesh cannot please God. And in verse 5, we, we hear what there? Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires versus those who live in accordance with the Spirit. This is what it's like. The Holy Spirit is on the FM band radio station, right? But the unbelieving world and the unbelieving mind can only receive AM signals. And so, and so the unbelieving mind cannot tune in to the things of God, to the Word of God, and, and trust in the Lord. But the believing mind in Jesus does exactly that. The believing mind tunes in the dial so that it matches with the wavelength of the Holy Spirit and of God himself, right? The believing mind. Verse 6, of course, here, we're, we're talking about the mind governed by the flesh is death. Not only does the unbelieving mind lead to death, it is death. The unbelieving mind is so alienated and separated from God, and that's the very definition of death, because the believing mind has the relationship of a child of God. And to be a child of God and to be underneath his blessing and under his smile, that is life. And that is peace. And then, of course, we find that the unbelieving mind, those who live in accordance with the flesh, they cannot submit to God's law. It is absolutely impossible for the unbelieving heart to find love in its heart to want to obey the Lord. And it doesn't. Even if it wanted to, it cannot do it, but the believing mind does. And so there's this contrast. The unbelieving mind cannot please God. The believing mind can and does. And this is where Paul moves us to that new life that lives in honor of the verdict that God gave because he looks at you and me in the eye in verse 9, and what does he say? You are not those who live according to the flesh. You are those who live according to the Holy Spirit. Living inside of each one of you is the dove sent from heaven, the Holy Spirit. Living in each one of you through your faith in Jesus Christ is the very God who formed the first man out of the dust and out of the clay of the ground and, and pinched his nostrils and tilted up his chin and whoosh, breathed in him the breath of life. Living inside of you is the very one who filled a vast and innumerable army of dry bones, the people of God dry of hope and desperate for peace. And he filled them with peace and with new life and the promises of the restoration of Christ. Living inside of you is the very Spirit of God that empowered our Lord Jesus to successfully carry out his ministry of salvation. That, that, that Spirit of, of, of knowledge, of wisdom, and of knowledge, of counsel, and of might, of understanding, and of the fear of the Lord. And so this is what life now is like for you after the verdict. Remember who lives in you, and then tune the dial to the Holy Spirit. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to think right now of all of the ways and all of the thoughts and the attitudes and maybe the life decisions that you have made that are not in tune with the Holy Spirit. So you got that garbled radio station, you know, 
And, and you take the dial, and you now courageously, by the power of the Spirit, turn it until it matches the wavelength of the Spirit. Get what I'm saying? Live your life in honor of the verdict that God gave by serving him in the way that he has called you to serve. That's life after the verdict. That's your life. Now go, get out of here and live it victoriously. Amen. <laughs>